I would say that it is a supremacist center statement to say all lives matter when we are talking about a house that is actually on fire. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with the subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Cece Jones-Davis. Cece, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Joy. I really appreciate you reaching out. This is a great, a great opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited that we got to connect. And before we dive into our topic today, can you give our listeners a little bit about who you are, how you started doing what you're doing, and some of your spiritual background? How'd you get introduced to church and faith? Yeah. So I am from a really small town um, called Halifax, Virginia. Um and uh, Halifax is a place that I cherish um, just really, you know, deeply. Um, but I grew up in a very racially divided community because my town is, of course, Virginia is, is the seat of the Confederacy. And so um, my town was a plantation town. And so growing up in my town in the 80s was still had like a 60s feel to it. Um, but I, you know, I grew up with a really strong family unit, um, phenomenal uh, parents and grandparents who didn't have much, but gave me much, uh, and they raised me in the church. And so I don't have, um, this huge, huge, um, come to Jesus moment in life because, you know, I was really, really cultivated, uh, in church, particularly this, the, the Methodist church. Um, but when I uh, was 12 or 13, I was able to visit some family in Seattle, Washington, where I was really introduced to evangelicalism. And um, that experience was extremely for formative for me. And it's where I learned, first heard praise and worship songs as opposed to hymns. It's where I first saw kids really passionate about prayer, um, where I was introduced to small groups, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so evangelicalism really became um, my home for uh, from that point and all way up into my adult life. But to back up a little bit, I went to Howard University. I went uh, for sociology, which is a historically black college uh, founded in 1867 um, by, uh, by folks who could not attend uh, other universities. And so we had to create our own for higher education, higher learning. And then I went on to Yale Divinity School uh, to get a Master's of Divinity uh, and to study sacred music. So um, that's a little bit about my background, but all of those roads, my growing up in, in church, my um, going to Howard for the quote unquote black experience. Uh, and we can talk about that more if you want to later. And then going to Yale, uh, uh, obviously a predominantly white institution um, to get an, a theological education really were formative uh, moments in life that brought me and carried me on a road toward ministry and social justice work. Um, and so uh, my ministry is really about kind of being a bridge between the here and the there, the sacred and the secular, 
and um, encouraging people to not abhor the world, but love the world like God has and uh, to care about the poor and the oppressed, the prisoner, the orphan, um, those people that, that Jesus cares so much about. Uh, so it's been a, it's been quite, quite the journey. I, I must say it's been quite the journey being, um, being a part of the church, but having my ministry more outward facing, it's been quite the journey. That's amazing. And it perfectly segues into some of what we're talking about today, which is justice. You know, the Bible's filled with verses. One that comes to mind is Amos 5.24 that says, let justice flow like a river. And wouldn't that be amazing to see in this country and in this world? But sadly, we just seem to be off balance. So, Cece, when did you first start to wrestle with the fact that something isn't right? Obviously, you gave some of your background and some of your story. But when did you start to realize that, no, this is something I need to grapple with? Absolutely. It was in New Haven, Connecticut um, in 2002. I had always been really, really intrigued by the Ryan White story, which was the little boy, uh, people will remember, who contracted HIV um, in the 80s from a blood transfusion. Um, I had seen his his story depicted on TV when I was a kid, and that story always stuck with me. And so um, throughout the years, I really kind of, especially because HIV and AIDS had impacted the African-American community um, disproportionately, I had really kind of studied the trends and followed along. I had done my research paper um, um, and so my, for my sociology degree uh, about AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, it was the issue that really kind of plagued my heart, just really grabbed me. And so in 2002, when I was really grappling with, I knew I was called to ministry, but I was trying to figure out, like, what does that look like for me? You know, my models of ministry were mostly male and white, and I had no idea, but I, I, I knew that I was called um, to serve God and through vocation for all of my life. And so um, when I got to divinity school, that was the time when I was really grappling with what that looked like. And this thing about HIV AIDS really kind of kept stirring for me. And so I found a local AIDS hospice in New Haven, which actually is um, one of the oldest AIDS hospices in the country. It's called Leeway. And um, I started to volunteer there because I didn't know much, but I knew that I, I knew that I wanted to know more. And so I started volunteering and I have to tell you, Joy, I was so afraid when I first walked into that place because I had done the studying, but I had never really put myself in proximity, right? And so I walked into this hospice for people um, in the last stages of AIDS and my arms were were across my chest, folded across my chest because I was scared to touch a wall. I was scared to sit down. I was scared. And so um, I took a loop around that place. I kind of ducked my head in a couple of rooms and said, waved and said, hello. And I was out of that building within five minutes. I was so freaked out. I was breathing hard. I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? This is not for me. My family was like, don't do that, Cece. You could, you know, put yourself in some kind of danger. But um, I knew I had to go back and I I kept going back. And before you know it, I was washing people's hair and cutting people's fingernails and playing checkers. and, And what really grabbed me was the fact that it really broke my heart was that we have a whole group of people that are suffering in silence 
that have been ostracized by their, many of them have been ostracized by their families. They're alone, they don't have any friends, nobody visits them. And when I go and I talk to them, they're pointing to pictures of their children in their rooms who they haven't seen in years, all because of a virus. And that was the beginning for me of justice work. And when I say justice, I want people to understand what I mean. You know, I, when I'm looking at the scripture, I see justice as a word that is interchangeable with righteousness. And, um, you know, the scripture says in the Beatitudes, blessed are, are those who thirst after justice or blessed are those who, who thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. And it was justice is for me is about making things right. That's all that it means for me. It's making something that that we can see that is wrong, doing our best to make it right. And I wanted to make it right for those people in that hospice. I wanted to make it right for our society and particularly the church that shunned people with AIDS when AIDS was, you know, the big, biggest epidemic we were dealing with worldwide. And um, that was my entry point into, into justice work. And so I say all the time that I'm not a person drawn mainly to issues. I'm a person drawn to people. And so once I connect and get in proximity with a person who is suffering at a level like that, I'm in criminal justice reform now because there is a person who is suffering. Um, and uh, that has been my entry point always to issues of justice, and I think it will always be. Now, Cece, the topic of justice, the way that you define that and live that out, was that something that you had heard from a church pulpit or from a faith organization, or was that something that you had to seek out and be a little bit more deliberate to discover because you weren't hearing it from a faith standpoint? That's a, such a good question. Um, I can say as a person who was born and raised in the black church culture, justice has always been a huge part of, of the faith tradition of black people in this country because it's had to be, you know, the church has been the hub for all things, um, civil rights and social justice, et cetera. And so when you talk about like voting rights and um, taking care of people in the community. You know, that has always been very centered in the Black church tradition. Um, however, when I made, when I decided to move toward multiculturalism, when I decided to move toward evangelicalism, specifically white evangelicalism, I didn't hear so much about justice. I heard a lot about mercy, I heard a lot about charity. We're, you know, we're, we're good at charity, um, but I didn't hear much about justice. And um, I had to make a conscious decision that I was not going to assimilate anymore to um, things that um, were not, did not ring true or well for me at the end of the day. And um, so in some contexts, I have been the oddball out. I, I'm, I'm probably on the fringes and don't even know it. You know what I mean? Like I'm probably I'm a I'm an ordained minister and I'm probably on the fringes of the church and don't even realize, it. <laughs> you know, but 
And so, you know, I recognize I'm not for everybody and everybody's not for me, you know, but I, I can no longer, I've made a conscious decision to no longer place myself in environments that does not take justice seriously because I believe God takes justice seriously. And when we talk about justice, many people think about many different things. And one that comes to mind, obviously, because we're talking about it, is racial justice. Uh, so let's dive into that a little bit. The, the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020 has caused many to question the justice system, along with the senseless killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, numerous others as well. And Cece, I've personally heard some comment that all lives matter and that we just need to do better. Why is that not enough when calling for justice to simplify the issue and disregard the specificity of the race? Why is that not enough? I'm going to, I'll use an analogy that a friend of mine uses, and I think it's great. If we were in a community, a town, and one of the buildings was on fire, all of us would be filling our buckets and moving the, that water to the house that's on fire, the building that's on fire. We wouldn't be splashing water on buildings that were not on fire because those are not that, the buildings that are at risk of burning down. When people say all lives matter, is it a true statement? Yes, it is. But it is a very, so, um, I would say supremacist centered statement because the people who say that are not recognizing the house that is in fact on fire right now. We are not saying African-American people and other people who are saying Black Lives Matter, whether you believe in Black Lives Matter as just a statement, I hope everybody believes it as a statement, or you're supportive of the organization. I, you know, it's neither here nor there for me. At the, fundamentally, we should all believe ideologically that Black lives matter. And so if we are not all working toward putting out the fire that we continue to see on the news on a regular basis, by, by the way, these incidences are not new. They are just being recorded, okay? The Black community has been suffering behind police brutality since the slave patrols that started to keep slaves on their plantations, okay? And so when, when people don't recognize the history, don't recognize that these are not unique circumstances, it simply means that we have not done enough when it comes to understanding the history of our country. And so I, I will say that it is a selfish position to say all lives matter. I would say that it is a supremacist centered statement to say all lives matter when we are talking about a house that is actually on fire. And I wanna invite my brothers and sisters, no matter where you are, on any spectrum, I want to invite you to actually do the research so that you can understand that number one, police brutality is not new. 
Number two, that there's a very there are very good reasons why the African American community um, have mm, difficult relationships with law enforcement historically, uh, and that while you might see law enforcement as your protection, the African American experience says something very different, and people need to really pay attention to that because it's as it's at this it's rooted it's the root of what is going on in this country right now and that brought to mind that this lack of justice this inability to understand our history not only affects our country but it also affects our church it simply domino affects the unity that we're supposed to be exemplifying specifically from Jesus according to John 17 CC, what is the effect on the church if we don't get a handle on this? You know, you said that you don't place yourself in environments that don't take justice seriously. What is the effect on the church if we don't take justice seriously? Yeah, the church loses credibility. Um, and that that is a huge cost to to pay in a world where we're supposed to be the light. When you lose credibility in the world, the light dims. And when the light dims, Christ is not represented or exalted in the fashion that we know Christ should be. So the church, we are seeing that right now is paying a, a hefty price in the ways in which we have been complicit in racism. If people uh, have not, I really encourage you to read the book White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. Really talks, um, it's an incredible read about white supremacy and the church, specifically the Southern Baptist Church, which we know, you know, evangelicalism has a lot of roots in the Southern Baptist Church. <clears throat> so I really invite people to read that book. It, it lays it out really, really plain for all of us to see. But the church is losing credibility and people are feeling like they've got to find another way because this Jesus that we've been talking about and singing about has some kind of way insulated us from the mission. And um, he's become colonized in a way that is damaging to the global faith. He's been colonized to be um, a white person that doesn't care too much or say too much about the brown people around him, the oppressed people around him. And I, it is very, that it, that is not the story of Christ at all. The Bible is full of brown people, written by brown people. Jesus was a brown person who understood oppression as a Palestinian Jew, understood oppression very well. And so uh, we've got to decolonize the Bible. We've got to decolonize um, the way we read. And uh, we, have to, we have to allow a new form of this faith to be, to be birthed because we can like it or not, and we can go down with a kick and a screaming, but the way that we have known this faith is dying. And I would say it's a good death. Now, Cece, can you share a little bit about your work with Justice for Julius? Absolutely. Uh, Justice for Julius. Julius Jones was a 19-year-old um, 
college student in Oklahoma in 1999 when a murder took place of a white well-known business owner. Um, Julius was subsequently tried, convicted, and sentenced to death for that crime. Uh, and in 2018, Academy Award winner Viola Davis, her husband, Julius Tenen, the, Innocence, the New York Innocence Project, brought Julius' story to light um, through the la ABC's The Last Defense. I happened to watch The Last Defense, which really was meant to highlight um, the brokenness of our criminal justice system. They uh, featured Julius's story, and I watched it. It was a three-part docu-series. I watched it, and I was horrified at how wrong our criminal justice system seemed to have gotten this wrong. Um, how, how just how bad it was. And as a person who's never been justice involved, I've never had, you know, the first time I stepped foot in a courtroom in my entire life was in 2018 when I was 38 years old. Um, and it was about Julius Jones, you know. I don't know the criminal justice system. I didn't know it. Um, but to see through a person's story how badly they had gotten it wrong, you know, um, the attorney in the case, was a public defender who had 70 to 80 cases, he says at the time, didn't visit Julius, didn't call one witness to the stand. After the prosecution rested, the defense attorney literally stood up and said, we rest. Did not present a photo that could have shown, that had been taken eight days before the crime, that could have shown that Julius didn't even fit the description. But the co-defendant did, and the co-defendant happened to be a police informant who got a deal with the prosecutors to testify against Julius. And that same informant um, spent some time in prison and bragged to other inmates about being the actual killer and pinning this on Julius Jones. Um, and But Julius has been on death row for 21 years and we believe it's for a crime that he didn't commit. And so when I say that I'm really not drawn to issues, people bring me into issues. Julius Jones brought me into criminal justice work. Um, because I saw his suffering and then I connected with his family here in Oklahoma and saw their suffering. And, you know, Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy and heads uh, the Equal Justice Initiative uh, down in Alabama, he always talks about the power of proximity. When you come close to people's stories, it's very hard to turn away. And that's what happened to me with Julius. I came close to his story. I met his family. I looked his mother in the eye and I knew from there that I couldn't walk away from them. Uh, and so for the last two years, I've been helping to lead an effort, the Justice for Julius campaign to, um, to, to grant him a, a commutation hearing with the party and a parole board and uh, to hopefully get him, out of, get him out of prison. He doesn't belong, to, he doesn't deserve to be there. Yeah, that's powerful, Cece. And as we wrap up, usually what I ask the guest is, what's the first step that the church can do? But I want to get a little bit more specific. Instead of just asking what the church can do to step into justice, as a white male speaking to an African female, what's something that I personally can do as I try to step into justice in my environment where I do experience privilege and I do experience sheltering from certain things. How do I step in to better engage with justice as someone who follows Jesus from your perspective? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think, Joy, I think that you're on the right track. First of all, you invited me and you could have invited anybody else, but you invited me, an African-American woman. You lifted up my voice through this podcast. That's a really powerful thing that you have. So when you have a platform, the more uh, opportunity you can give to um, to uh, representatives from a marginalized people groups uh, is, is fantastic. And I really wanna thank you for that. Uh, Native American, I want to invite you to have to think about, you know, Native Americans. Um, uh, I've got some suggestions. Uh, and, you know, the, any any marginalized people group, you allowing them to come on this show to talk about their lives, their work, their perspective is extremely powerful. The second thing I would say is it's amazing that you recognize privilege because a lot of people have a hard time with that word, and I want people to know, well, here's what I want people to know about privilege. That privilege is not a curse. That privilege is not a cuss word. That privilege is not an accusation. Privilege is a blessing that you lay down as a bridge for someone else. Most people have a level of privilege. I have privilege. I don't have white privilege. I do have privilege because I've, I've got a good education. And so how can I use those opportunities to lay those, those blessings, to lay them down as a bridge for other people? That is my responsibility, I think, as a, as a follower of Jesus, to lift as I climb, as I climb. And so you recognizing privilege um, as a blessing and something you can turn away to create a bridge is, is it, <coughs> is it, is what you should be doing. And it's an amazing thing. The last thing I would say is that we need to delve ourselves into history because if you don't understand that slavery was a 267 plus year institution, in this country. If you don't understand that on top of that, a hundred years of Jim Crow, lynching, violence, eaten by dogs, babies killed. If you don't understand that a hundred years on top of that have been a fight for civil rights, then you don't, you don't understand what, what we're talking about as African-American people um, um, demanding justice in this country. And so you've got to delve yourself into the hard history. And you got to be able to reflect it out into the world. You don't need to be guilty about it. We don't need to be guilty about it. We don't need to be ashamed about it. This is just the truth. This is just the truth. And we are not going to get further if we can't all settle on what's true and what's not in this country. And we haven't settled on what's true about what has happened to African-American people or native people in this country. And then how we can be so, um, solution oriented as individuals and groups about how to make those things better for people. Not that we were responsible, but because we are Jesus followers, we help others carry their load. We, we bear crosses on behalf of other people. I don't have to be in this work for Julius Jones. I'm not on death row, but I bear a cross for someone who could not speak for themselves. And that's what each and every one of us can do. That's what each and every one of us can do. Well, Cece, thank you so much for being on the show. I've so enjoyed our conversation. If people wanted to connect with you, find out more about Justice for Julius, or just see what you got going on, where could they find you and how can they do that? 
Yeah. So first, Justice for Julius. People can go to justiceforjulius.com to watch the docu-series that I referred to and to learn information and to learn how to get involved. You can contact me through that website. You can also go to ccecejonesdavis.com to contact me. And I'm on all social media, CC Jones Davis. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, CC, thanks for being on the show. Joy, thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. You can follow us on Instagram at dismantlepod or shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. <laughs>